Well, the lesson we learn is don't mess with Mother's Day. I don't know where everybody went, apparently, to go see mothers. But uh, I'm glad you're here. It's a delight to see you. And I believe these must be Katie's parents. So I'm glad that you're with us. So while others scattered, at least somebody came in. And they're from Indiana. And you can't beat people from Indiana. That's all I can say, you know. I'm a Hoosier, if you didn't know. Well, we've gathered here to worship our God together, and we are glad you're here. Let's take our Trinity hymn books, the Trinity hymn books, Trinity to Hymn 108, which comes from the psalm that Cliff will be reading to us here in a little bit. Psalm 148. Praise ye, praise ye the Lord. Hymn 108 in the Trinity hymn books. Stand together as we sing.
Amen. Be seated. So you can be turning to Psalm 148. Also, if you'd like, I want to just briefly touch on what I'm calling a New Testament parallel between verse 14 of this 13 and 14 of this psalm and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, verse 12, so you can turn there as well. This psalm <coughs> calls all of creation to praise Yahweh. Uh, the, once again, as we saw the last two psalms, they begin and they end with the hallelujah. That is two words, of course, praise Yah. Yah is the contracted version of Yahweh. <coughs> and all these psalms... Uh, begin and end, all these last few, five or so, begin and end with the hallelujah. So he calls all creation, and I like uh, Spurgeon's outline of it. What I do is I go through and read it every day during the week and just scratch out a little outline. Well, I chuck mine because Spurgeon's is simpler and better. And <laughs> he, he says there's, there's two headings. We praise Yahweh from the heavens, and we praise Yahweh uh, from the earth, uh, verse 7. So he begins with the heavens, of course, and he begins with those who are unseen by us, the angels, the celestial angels, messengers. And then he also calls upon creation itself, sun, moon, uh, stars, and he mentions, I, I believe it was him, mentions some 19. They don't have a voice. There's no language. Their, their voice is not heard. But when you see a star, it is visible praise. It's not something you audibly, you, you hear audibly. So I thought that was an excellent point um, that he makes. God is <clears throat> to be praised, but he is also, uh, in verse 14, he is the praise of his people. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.21 uh, says, He is your praise. This is a noun, not a verb, uh, like halal. It's a different word. He is your praise and he is your God that has done for you these great and terrifying or awe-inspiring things which your eyes have seen. And praise uh, is comely. Psalm 147.1 with uh, the noun there. Verse 13, I just wanted to touch on verse 13 and 14. We are to praise the name Yahweh because his name alone is excellent. His glory excels, or that is, it is above the earth and heaven. Even the James Webb telescope cannot come uh, show us enough of the heavens to bring us even close to God's glory. It is beyond that. It is above uh, the heavens. And then 
Um, verse 14, notice that he also exalts his people. He raises, uh, the word is horn, um, they're speaking of an ox's horn, which is signifies strength. He also exalts his people. He exhibits it, uh, perhaps. And this is where I want to draw a parallel with 2 Thessalonians 1.12. If you have that open, it says, Paul says, that, breaking into the context, I'm sorry, but um, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Notice the parallel with the name in uh, Psalm 148.13. Is the name is Yahweh. And I've mentioned before that I've puzzled over why Yahweh is not used in the New Testament until you get to the book of Revelation. And then it's the contracted form, just hallelujah. But it's because the Son now has the preeminence. God has placed all things into his hands. The name uh, now is Jesus Christ that we uh, glory in. And But then he goes on and says, and you in him. And this is just so amazing that we will be glorified on that day in him. And I think that parallels the sentiment in verse 14 of our psalm today. He also, it's like an aside. It's not just him, but he brings us seated together uh, with him uh, in the heavenly places. And what an amazing uh, condescension of the Lord and a raising and an amazing <laughs> uh, raising up ascension of us, if you will. Psalm 148, I will be using the New King James Version. Praise Yah, or hallelujah. Praise Yahweh from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens. And you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of Yahweh. For he commanded, and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise Yahweh from the earth. You great sea creatures and all the depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, Fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of Yahweh. For his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. And he has exalted the horn of his people the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Praise Yah. Well, for me, it's a, a delight to put a face with a name. As I mentioned in Sunday school, uh, Tim and I have been in contact with one another for 
uh, I don't know how many months now, and so it's been good to have him and Katie with us today. Um, he'll be opening the Word of God to us this afternoon, so after this hymn, I will turn it over to him. So take your Trinity hymn books, turning to 226, 226, Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore, 226. stand together as we sing. Church, thank you again so much for having us here today and being so welcome, welcoming to my wife and me. Uh, you've blessed us and encouraged us in just a short time. Truly want to say thank you for, for having us. I have a question for you all because you're going to walk out of here today and go home and tomorrow is a new Monday. What are the top anxieties in your lives right now? Uh, my wife and I are going to drive back home to Louisville and go back to our weekly routine 
And there are at least three things that come right to the top of my mind, three pressures that I'm going to have to deal with this week. Uh, What are the things in your lives that are hanging over your head? Maybe you feel them looming in front of you um, that, that take up your attention. I don't want to distract you with them right now. Uh, don't want us to get sidetracked by them, but I do want you to identify them and realize what they are. We'll be in Psalm 110 this afternoon, so you can turn there, Psalm 110, and I think you'll see that some of the whole Bible, some of the Bible's biggest themes are here in this psalm. And I pray that you would be encouraged by our time here today. Uh, I hope that you'll take the truths that we see here and carry them into the rest of your week so that the fears and anxieties in your life, so that you see those in the right perspective. So Psalm 110, it was written by King David, and it's a poem. And it seems like David has he's had a dream or he's seen a vision from God. And let's read. Read along with me. A psalm of David. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So the main figures that we see here in this psalm, we have the narrator, David, We have his covenant God, Yahweh, that's the Lord in in all capitals. And we have another, another man, it seems, who David calls my Lord. And then we also see that the Messiah has enemies and he has followers, he has allies. But the main idea, if you're a note taker, uh, the main idea in this psalm is this, and it's what I hope we take away. Take heart, because Jesus is in command. Take heart, because Jesus is in command. I think the psalm breaks into three parts, so we'll have three points in our sermon. In verse 1, David hears Yahweh speaking to the Messiah. He, he, overhears or he, he overhears or witnesses what is said. And then in verses 2 to 4, David is speaking to the Messiah. And in 5, 6, and 7, David is speaking to Yahweh about the Messiah. So we have three points, 
three things that King Jesus is in command of here. Three things that we see him doing. So in verse 1, the Messiah rules. He's on a throne in command of the universe. He's reigning. He's ruling. In verses 2 to 4, he leads. He's in command of his people, his followers. He's leading. And in verses 5 to 7, he wins. He's in total control of the war with his enemies. So he rules, he leads, and he wins. So point number one, the Messiah rules. Now in in verse one, Yahweh says to this mysterious other figure, David's Lord, he says to him, sit at my right hand. And when we hear the right hand, we're supposed to think of action and we're supposed to think of honor. Uh, Metaphorically, God uses his right hand just like most of us use our right hands. It's to act and perform the, the actions that we do. So we're supposed to think active, not passive. But it's also a place of honor. So if, if a senior businessman tells a younger businessman, hey, I'm making you my right-hand man, he's basically saying, I'm going to establish you and I'm going to build you up and give you responsibilities that I don't give to just anybody else. So it's a special position, and it's a place of action, of getting things done. And this verse, verse 1, is quoted near the end of the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, it appears in all of those. And the scribes and the Pharisees are heckling Jesus. They understand that in this psalm, God the Father is addressing the Messiah, that's, that was a given, that was understood in Jesus' day, that this was a messianic psalm. He's a Davidic king. He's anointed. That's what the Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christ mean. And the scribes and the Pharisees get that. They know Yahweh's covenant with David. You can read about it in the book of 2 Samuel. But in that conversation, in that in that. Um, in that standoff between Jesus and those groups, what Jesus emphasizes from this verse in Psalm 110 is that the Messiah is called David's Lord, which means that he must be greater than David in some way. And we know, because we have the New Testament, we know that he's greater in every way because he's God himself, he's God incarnate. So the scribes and the Pharisees didn't know that. They weren't expecting that. So that's Jesus' point. It's who the Messiah is as a person. He's a very important person. But then in in lots of other New Testament passages, remember this, this verse is quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament verse. And in, in many of those other New Testament passages, the point that other writers are taking from this verse is that the Messiah is in control. Jesus is in control. Most of the time, they're, they're looking at this, this psalm and they're seeing he's ruling now on his throne over the whole universe. So rather than Jesus' person, rather than who he is, it's his work that they focus on. It's what he's done 
It's, it's his supremacy over the whole universe because of what he's accomplished on the cross. He's gone and died on the cross and he's been, been raised from the dead and now he's reigning over creation. So this is already the case for, for us today. He is on his throne right now. It's already begun. Uh, just one example of this, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, in 1 Peter 3, Peter is writing to suffering Christians, and his point is that Jesus suffered, and he died, and he rose, and he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So they've been put down under, under him. They've been made subject to him. And for all of us here, I don't usually remember this kind of truth first thing on a Tuesday morning or on a Monday afternoon. Uh, when, when Tuesday morning, when that first anxiety comes across my mind, the, the first thing I need to take care of but, friends, this is what we desperately need to remember. The, the takeaway for us from verse 1 is that if you belong to Jesus, if you belong to this, this king of the universe, then you can breathe. You can step back and take heart and you can breathe because Jesus has got this. He's reigning over the universe right now, over every evil power. He's in command through political unrest. He's, he's in command over the economy, over things that no person can control. In his providence, he's been controlling the coronavirus and all of the fallout from the pandemic. He's in command of your life and your times and your days, whether you live in times of plenty or times of trouble. So no matter what comes, small things, or huge problems, Jesus is on his throne. So friend, your life and your fortunes, they don't ultimately depend on your ability to avoid every hazard in life. You won't be able to avoid every problem. And thank the Lord, you don't need to. Because they have to get through him. Those problems have to get through Jesus to reach you. And even as they come, he will give us grace and he'll bring us through those trials to where he is. And we're going to see this in the second section. So in point two, the Messiah leads his people. He leads his followers in verses two to four. So now David addresses his master, this Messiah. And what kind of people have scepters and rule? In verse 2 there. Well, monarchs and kings. That word rule in verse 2, it means dominate. It's a, it's a strong word. It doesn't just mean sit on your throne in fancy kingly clothing. It means use your power and authority. Subdue your enemies. Uh, look at verse 3. If, if verse 3 sounds confusing, it sounded very confusing to me. Uh, the first read through, it's because the Hebrew text is actually very difficult and it's hard to know how to translate this verse. But it seems like your youth means the young people following you. 
It's interesting that they're all called young. And they're dressed in holy array, holy garments. They're giving off this splendor. And these people are going to be numerous, as numerous as the drops of dew on your lawn when you go out early and see all the drops on the grass. You can't count them. So the Messiah has this multitude of followers, men and women he has saved, and they're going to be with him on this day when his power is revealed, on this day of battle. When when verse 3 says that your people will offer themselves freely, I think that tells us a lot about what Jesus is like. Jesus is the kind of leader that people gladly, willingly follow. Uh, I read an article a little while back about leadership, and the writer was contrasting these two different ways that leaders can sometimes act. Uh, Maybe you can relate to this with bosses that you've had, or leaders you've known, or even yourself, ways that you have uh, had to be a leader in the past. But the writer contrasted leading a group from the front as, as opposed to driving a group from behind. So he, he contrasted a shepherd leading sheep from the front with a rancher or a cattle farmer who has to drive cattle from the back. And no offense to, no offense to any ranchers or cattle farmers here, but do you see his point? People aren't cattle. We're, we're a lot more like sheep than we are like cows. And we need good shepherds who lead us from the front, who live among us, who teach us by example. And Jesus is that kind of leader. He's the good shepherd. He doesn't drive his people with force. He's not, he's not pulling out the cattle prod at every moment. He knows our frame. He knows that we're weak. And he leads us with gentleness. He's the strong one. And yet he knows how to rule with strength while also controlling that strength and treating his flocks with gentleness. You'll you'll recognize this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's, that's from Matthew 11. This is the kind of leader who draws and attracts followers, a good shepherd. His people follow him willingly. Now in verse 4, Yahweh swears an oath. He makes a promise. You are a priest. He makes the Messiah, declares the Messiah a priest. Well, we've already heard that this man is a king. And things don't work like that in Israel. A man, he isn't both a king from David, from Judah, and also a priest from Levi. But David explains he's he's not a priest in the Levitical priesthood, but he's a priest in the way that Melchizedek was a priest, both a king and also a special kind of priest. And if we had more time today, we would look at Hebrews 7, because that's where the New Testament explains this verse. And the point of Hebrews 7 is that God meant for the Mosaic Covenant to be replaced. Because those Levites and their sacrifices, they couldn't cleanse the people. They couldn't change people's hearts. 
they couldn't, they couldn't make anyone go from hating God and ignoring God to loving him. Those sacrifices, they couldn't pay for sin and they couldn't reconcile people to God. We need a greater priest. People need a permanent solution to be reunited with God. We need a better priest with better sacrifices. And praise God, that's what we have in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And how long does his priesthood last in verse 4? It's forever. So maybe you guys sing, sing this hymn here. Before the throne of God above, I have, what do I have? A strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever, always lives and pleads for me. He pleads for his people. He says, he says to his father, don't hold their sins against them because I've paid the price. Don't condemn them like they deserve because I've taken all the condemnation that they deserved. Father, give them good things instead. Do everything for the good of those who love you, who you've called to be your own people. He leads his people and he meets all of their needs to the fullest. So friends, this is the gospel. This is why Christians rejoice and sing and make a big deal out of God. It's because we had rebelled and turned away from God, from a holy God. In Adam, all of we, all of us like dumb sheep have gone astray. Adam rebelled and he took all of us with him. And we stood condemned in front of a holy God who's too pure to tolerate sin and he's, he's too just to tolerate rebels. And instead of wiping us out and crushing the whole rebellion, God said, I'm going to save some of them and turn them back to me. I'm going to pay the debt that they've racked up and I'm going to suffer the penalty that they deserve and I'm going to restore our relationship again. That's why Jesus came and why he lived and died and rose from the dead. He did it so that you could come back into the presence of God Almighty and not be destroyed so that you could be safe and be right with God. And we do that by trusting Jesus. We look at him and we say, yes, Jesus, you've done what I couldn't do. You've lived a righteous life and you've suffered the penalty that I deserved. And I want to follow you and be a part of your people now. And when we do that, when we, when we turn to Jesus and we trust in him for that payment and that salvation, at the same time, we turn away from our old ways of life from every lifestyle that God says to turn away from, that's what repentance is. It's turning away from the old and turning toward God. So if you've done that, friend, if you've identified yourself with Jesus and become a member of the new covenant people, you can celebrate today. Because if you're following Jesus, you're following the best leader you could possibly have. There's no better captain you could follow. Now, in, in verses 5 to 7, we come to the third section, the third point. The Messiah wins. He conquers his enemies. The Messiah wins. And David changes who it is he's addressing here. Before, he was speaking to his master, his Lord, and he mentioned Yahweh. Now, he turns and he speaks to Yahweh about his master, he says the, the master is at the right hand of Yahweh, like we heard in verse 1. 
and we see this master and Messiah as a warrior. And as I prepared this, this message, this sermon, the thing that stood out to me in a new way was the violence in these verses. And this is the, the flip side of what we just saw in the previous section in point two. Because Jesus is the best captain you could ever follow, but he's also the worst opponent you could ever try to come against. In, in these last verses, the Messiah, he isn't just a king and a warrior, He's also the judge and the jury and the executioner. It says he shatters opposing kings and rulers. That means that if they survive at all, they're crippled, like a man who's been kneecapped. If, if you're familiar with the troubles in Northern Ireland from the 1960s to the 1990s, you might know what it means to be kneecapped. It's really horrific. Uh, it's a terrible thing to suffer and, and in the Troubles in Ireland, lots of innocent people suffered unjustly in completely undeserved ways. But, but know this, on the last day, on the day of his wrath, when King Jesus sets everything right, some knees are going to bow to him out of joy and loyalty because they love him. And some knees are going to bow because they've been broken. They won't work properly anymore. He, he isn't coming so that he can slap people on the wrist and, and hand them detention slips. He's coming to crush his enemies. So anyone who does not love Jesus, anyone who hasn't turned away from their rebellion and come to him for clemency is going to be shattered. And, and that's frankly a very offensive thing to say. It's very politically incorrect. It's very divisive. It's, it's very violent. We avoid topics like this. But if we're going to be biblical, and if we're going to get our words right and get our theology right, then we have to talk about things, things like sin and justice and retribution. And friends, the Messiah is carrying out justice in this psalm. The judge of all the earth will not do wrong. He says to Abraham in Genesis, he will, he will not make a mistake or a wrong judgment call. He will never punish an innocent person in an unjust way. So every judgment that he deals out is going to be altogether right and deserved. I think verse 7, verse 7 can be one of the most confusing parts of this psalm, kind of like verse 3. But verse 7 makes sense if, if we see some of these same phrases used in other psalms. Uh, in Psalm 27, I didn't know this without some helpful commentaries, but in Psalm 27, David says there that my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. He says my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. But here in Psalm 110, the Messiah doesn't just win and rise up above his enemies. He vanquishes them. He wipes them out. Uh, on, on combat deployments, it's not safe to do normal, everyday things at any old time of the day. You, you have to make sure it's safe. So if soldiers are going to eat a meal or get some sleep, not everybody eats or sleeps all at the same time. Someone needs to keep watch and provide security. But here, at the end of this psalm, 
it's gotten to the point that he doesn't even need to think about providing security because all the threats have been neutralized. He can take a break and get a drink knowing that the coast is clear. Every single enemy has been dealt with and the battle is over. And if you're a Christian, that's what you have to look forward to. This is the future for us. Jesus is reigning. He's seated on this throne and every power in this world is being made subject to him. But it's also waiting for us in the future when that's totally going to be made final. Uh, Right now, there are still enemies and threats around us. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, Hebrews 2 tells us. So there are real threats that are still out there, but they have to go through Jesus to reach us. And one day, every single one of those threats is going to be taken out for good. This is what the early church clung to. You know, if if you were a Christian in 63 or 65 AD when Nero is ruling, you see Nero torturing Christians, then Psalm 110 brings tons of comfort if this is true. You know, if, if you're a Christian in the 90s AD and Domitian is persecuting the church, this is going to be, this is the kind of promise that you can hold on to and go to the grave knowing that that's not the end. I know, I know how this story ends. You can see, reading verses 5 to 7, I think you can see how the Jews in Jesus' day, they expected a Messiah who would vanquish the Romans right away. And Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah they were expecting. God's timing was different. But God is going to judge wicked rulers. We can trust God to deal out justice. You can, dr- you can trust God to deal with wicked rulers. Sometimes it's sudden and instant. Uh, think of the king of Babylon. One minute, one minute he's proudly looking out over Babylon, and the next he's eating grass. Or, or Herod Agrippa in the book of Acts. God strikes him down in Caesarea for taking pride in his power. So it can happen just like that. The worms cleaned up Herod Agrippa. Emperors, kings, presidents, governors, senators, all sorts of rulers and politicians, God is going to hold them accountable for how they rule and for how they relate to him. And other times... God's judgment looks delayed to us. He doesn't strike down people on the spot. And that's an opportunity for us, friends. We have to share the gospel with lost people. If if this is what happens to God's enemies, then we need to plead with people to stop opposing God. We have to love them enough to warn them. And, And I'm preaching to myself here. I need to care less about what people think of me and how I come across to them how this message sounds, because I can care so much about image that I fail to share the gospel accurately with people. Um, I have to pray for boldness and grace to speak the truth to people who are lost. We all do. I know it's hard when you've been praying for friends and family members, sometimes for years, It can get to where it feels hopeless and and demoralizing because you haven't seen the changes you hope for. God hasn't done what you've asked for yet. I know that's really hard. 
but, but our task is to keep being faithful, whatever the results look like, no matter how those, those friends or family members respond to us. I know, friends, we're, we're not going to make anyone believe the gospel. We can't change their hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But we need to tell them that they're at risk of being shattered. I don't want this for anyone I love. So we've got to love them enough to tell them the gospel. They won't want to hear it, but they need to hear it. God may perhaps grant them repentance, Paul tells Timothy. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. I pray that they will. I pray that the ones you love the ones that you pray for and evangelize, I pray that they will listen and see with new eyes and realize how wonderful of a Savior King Jesus really is. So, brothers and sisters, if you leave here with one takeaway from this psalm, I hope you leave with the assurance that Jesus Christ is in command of your life. He is on his throne, and the situation is in his hands. Life is hard. I get that, and there are a million things to be concerned about on the small scale and the big scales of life, the micro and the macro. I know if you're a parent or a grandparent, you can worry about what kind of world your kids are going to grow up in. But friends, they're going to grow up in a world where God is ruling from his throne. David knew this. Right? David knew this. He, he really believed this because he knew that teenage boys don't kill seven-foot warriors with slingshots. Right? The story of him killing Goliath, the moral of that story is not that you need to slay the Goliaths in your life. It's that God is sovereign and he will shatter anything that stands against him and his plans. David knew that it was God running the show God was winning the victories throughout his life and throughout Israel's history. And praise the Lord, we have the privilege of knowing how that history peaks and culminates in Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Psalm 110. Lord, it is a volatile world and we don't know what today will bring or what tomorrow or this week will bring. The nations around us, the nations rage, Lord, and the powers of darkness rage. But we know that right this minute, Lord, you are reigning on your throne. I pray for your local church here in Illinois County. We trust that you will give us all that we need, no matter what comes our way, Lord. We thank you that you are keeping us and preserving us. We praise you that you are the hero of all of history and you will achieve all the glory in the universe. Lord, we thank you that we are your people and we are safe with you as our leader. We trust that and we praise you for all of this. Let your kingdom come more and more here on earth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Certainly that word should help you get through the week. Turn in the Trinity hymn book to hymn 173.
173, all glory, laud, and honor to Thee, Redeemer King. 173, we'll sing this in closing. Let's stand as we sing. I pray we can say it's been good to have been in the house of God this day. You're dismissed.